One of the greatest obstacles to crafting health and wellness is identifying and controlling inflammation. It's at the core of all complex and chronic diseases, and it's the driving mechanism that underlies the most common symptoms that people like you struggle to overcome. Join us as we explore cutting-edge science and research to give you the information and tools you need to create the quality of life you want and deserve. And now, here is the host of Inflammation Nation, Dr. Stephen Noseworthy. All right, we're back with uh, part two of food sensitivity testing, talking about tier two tests, tests that I commonly do, but I don't do with everyone, and things that you need to know about food sensitivity testing. And the first thing that we talked about in the first episode was just simply understanding that um, you can only see what you test for. And that's important because there are different branches of the immune system that have the potential to create food sensitivity responses or food allergies. Um, and if you test for one but not the other, you're going to miss it. And sometimes you have to test for both. But quite often what we do is we look at somebody's relationship with food and the types of symptoms that they're creating to, to decide, are we going to test for allergy or are we going to test for sensitivity? And just to be real clean on that, allergy, true allergy, involves the IgE system. It's a type 1 immediate onset hypersensitivity that usually results in things like hives, itching, and swelling, might need an EpiPen injection to control. Whereas sensitivity involves mostly the IgG system, delayed onset hypersensitivity where the reaction to the food can come on as much as three days after the exposure. So they're kind of hard to track down with things like diet diaries. Um, and the IgG system is, again, not true allergy. It is a sensitivity, even though both of them are immune system responses. And this is, I think, one of the things that gets missed by conventionally minded doctors when they think about you know, oh, that's a sensitivity, it's not an allergy. Well, both of them create symptoms, number one, and that's reason enough to take them seriously. Number two, both of them involve an activation of the immune system. It's just different parts. And just because something doesn't produce an anaphylactic response doesn't mean it's not clinically relevant. It doesn't mean that it's not serious, particularly when you look at it from the perspective of the person who's suffering the food sensitivity symptomatology. Tell someone with massive migraines that are IgG sensitivity related that, oh, don't worry about your migraines related to food because it's not an allergy. That would be absolutely ridiculous. So as we ended the last episode, we, I was saying that there's, you know, beyond deciding are you going to test for allergy or sensitivity or conceivably both, there are several things that you need to know about food sensitivity testing. We started with the fact that you have to be eating foods that you're testing for to get reliable results because once you eliminate a food from your diet, the antibodies that would tell us you're reacting to that, whether it's an IgE or an IgG response, they, they go down to normal after six weeks of eliminating that food. And so you can't be gluten-free for more than a couple of months and expect to go do a gluten sensitivity test and see if you're reacting to gluten because theoretically shouldn't unless you've been incidentally exposed or maybe you've not been 100% gluten-free. A, a lot of the people that I talk to as potential new clients when they're applying to, to work with me, there's a question on my intake form about their diet and there's an option to check I'm gluten-free or I'm mostly gluten-free. And being mostly gluten-free is the same as not being gluten-free because if you eat anything, you're not gluten-free. 
uh, we'll come back to that probably on a, on a different episode. So I want to continue on with two other things and, and maybe a couple more that we need to understand and know about food sensitivity testing before we call this topic a wrap. Um, the second item that I mentioned in the last episode is that you you have to know that some foods or some things cross-react with foods and then can give you false positives. And so false negatives come, for example, when you run a test on a food that you would react to if you're eating it, but you're not eating it. That would be a false negative. But you can get false positives too, where you can actually run a food sensitivity panel and get a positive result for a food that you never have eaten in your entire life. Or maybe you had it once when you were a kid and you're 40 years old now, and you're like, that's weird. I've never had that, or I can't remember having that, yet it says that I'm reacting to it. Well, here's how this can work, right? If you've done much reading or listening to any of the wellness experts that are out there in the last few years, you've probably come across the concept of cross-reactivity or molecular mimicry. This is a phenomenon where um, some things or let's say two things look enough alike to your body that your immune system mistakes one for the other. And this happens when two things that are different share the same amino acid sequence in their protein structures. It literally is a case of mistaken identity. Now, cross-reactivity in the sense can happen in different ways in different domains. We can have food-to-food cross-reactivity. We'll talk more about that when we get to the episode where we talk specifically about gluten sensitivity and foods that cross-react with gluten or potentially cross-react with gluten. So we have food-to-food cross-reactivity potential. We have microbe-to-food cross-reactivity potential. So meaning that you might have some kind of a chronic infection like a virus that changes what your food sensitivity panel tells you. And we can also have food and microbe-to-human tissue cross-reactivity where infections in your body or foods that you eat cross-react with your own tissue and they can trigger or flare up different autoimmunities. Now, it's a more complicated topic. Um, If you want to hear more about that, then just shoot me an email at podcast at drnoseworthy.com, podcast at drnoseworthy.com. And just let me know like you'd like to hear more about this food and microbe to human tissue cross-reactivity. So anyways, with with food-to-food cross-reactivity, here's a prime example. And I'm just going to pick on gluten or dairy because those things are are easy to pick on. Let's say that you are gluten-sensitive and you go gluten-free for six months and you're doing a good job. You're not mostly gluten-free. You're truly gluten-free. And somewhere along the way, someone suggests, hey, why don't we test you for gluten sensitivity? And and when the test should be negative, because you've been gluten-free for more than six weeks, You do the test and unexpectedly it shows up as positive. Well, there's two potential reasons for that. One is maybe you've been accidentally exposed to gluten in the last six weeks, say at a restaurant or something, and you don't know that you're exposed, and that certainly can happen. Or if we assume that you're doing a good job of being gluten-free and you've not been accidentally exposed, you might be eating something that your immune system thinks is gluten So it shows you a gluten response on a test. And now we'll tease that out in a lot more detail when we do devote a full episode or two to this topic. But things like dairy, casein specifically, rice, 
white rice, and oats are all potential cross-reactors with gluten, meaning that at a molecular level, some people's immune systems can't tell the difference between gluten and dairy or gluten and rice or gluten and oats. And so they get a false positive. And this cross-reactivity can also happen between foods and chronic infections. Here's, and here's a great example. I, I know this lady who, at the time, and, and we're going back well, probably at least 10 years, maybe more than that. But anyways, this lady who was a, at the time, she was a 20-year strict vegan. And not me, but someone she was working with ran a food sensitivity panel on her. And every single animal protein on the list came back positive. And, and needless to say, that shook her faith in the testing and the doctor, because she, the doctor who ordered the test, because she had not eaten any animal products for 20 years. Now, the mystery was solved when we found that she had a chronic reactivating Epstein-Barr virus infection, which is known to potentially cross-react with all manner of foods. And so she got a bunch of false positives that started to really muddy the waters. But it was very clear she had not eaten animal products for 20 years. Either the test was unreliable in the sense that it didn't test what you said it tested, or there's something else as a confounding factor. And that was the case. And this is fairly well established in the medical literature, this concept of cross-reactivity between food and food and between microbes like chronic viruses. Epstein-Barr is a classic example. It's not the only one. But someone who comes up with a whole bunch of reactions to foods that they're not eating might, that might be a signal that someone's got a chronic infection. And maybe you'll go off and do a panel looking for Epstein-Barr, again, for example. Now, if that wasn't confusing enough, did you know, and this is the third thing, did you know that you might react differently to the same food depending on if you eat it cooked or raw? Because our immune system only reacts to things with protein structures, right? If you change the protein structure, you can change its potential reactivity. And that's what cooking does to food. It causes modification to the protein structures. Just think of the difference between a raw egg, a fried egg, a soft-boiled egg, and a hard-boiled egg. These are all different states of protein modification depending on if something is cooked, how it's cooked, or if it's not cooked. And so it's entirely feasible that you can eat a raw tomato in a salad, but react to cooked tomato in marinara sauce. Or I should say properly that you can eat a raw tomato in a salad and not react, but react to cooked tomatoes in spaghetti sauce or something like, or lasagna. And this can happen with any food that we commonly eat in either states. Now, I'm not telling you that every single person will react differently to cooked and raw versions of foods that they eat commonly. That's not the point. The point is for individual people, and we see this quite a lot with people who have chronic health issues, particularly in the autoimmune world with things like leaky gut, we tend to see this variability. They, they get that sensitive. But I don't want you to think that everyone has cross-reactivity. I don't want you to think that everybody has this problem with cooked versus raw. Some people do. Now, I tend to work with that type of clientele. I work with people who are pretty ill. You know, I work with people who are having trouble, but not quite so ill. But I, I work with people who are pretty sick. And so I see this probably more than maybe other doctors do. But nevertheless... Here's why this is important, because as far as I know, 
every single lab but one in the world runs their testing using only raw foods, including raw meats. That's how they set up their testing. And so if someone does have reactions to cooked food versus raw food, and all that gets tested is the raw version, they're going to get a lot of false negatives and they're going to get a lot of bad information. Now, you remember the last chat we talked about, uh, well, it was probably two episodes ago now, we talked about Cyrex Labs array number two, what I believe to be the best leaky gut test around. Well, they also have another test called array 10 and a couple of different versions of that, that basically is a 180 food testing panel for foods where they check not just the IgG, but also IgA responses to foods. And they check cooked and raw versions of foods that are commonly eaten in both states. Now, is that going, in my opinion, that is about the best that we can do with all the potential confounding variables that can interfere with the quality of information that we get from food sensitivity testing. Now, will that solve every problem with food sensitivity testing? No. Like I said, no test is perfect, but Cyrex has done a really good job at balancing the variables that tend to confuse testing, and they take specific tests to increase our confidence that we get actionable information. Let me add one more thing. Not only is it possible to have this cross-reactive phenomenon, well, let me start back up at number one. Not only do you have to be eating the foods that you're testing for, not only do you have to be aware of potential cross-reactivity giving you false positives, not only do you have to be aware that you might react to cooked versus raw versions of foods, it's also possible that, let's say that you tolerate wheat, you tolerate dairy, you tolerate tomato, and you tolerate pepperoni. But when you eat it all together in a pizza, then you have a problem. And this concept, it's called a neoantigen problem. When you take two proteins and basically stick them together, it creates a third entity where it's, it's made up of the two connected together. Sometimes people don't react to the individual components as they're tested individually, but they react when they consume them all at one time. And again, this is called neoantigen problems. There's no lab in the world that will ever be able to test every combination and permutation of how foods combine together in our diet to promote immune reactivity. And again, no lab in the world is going to solve all of these problems. And so we have to look at each individual case and ask the question, is it worth doing testing? And if so, what kind are we going to do? And what are the problems that we have to look out for to make sure that the money we spend is well spent and we're going to get information that's good and that it's actionable. Now, one final point here, or a couple of final points. What if you're positive to everything or, or a very large portion of the test? Well, most people are going to react to some foods, but not most foods. I would say that out of any 10, take 10 random food sensitivity panels that I might have run over the past, say, six months or so. I'm going to have some that show a handful of responses, but most of the test is normal. I'm going to have some that respond to a third, but the two thirds, the other two thirds are normal. And then once we start getting to the point where someone's reacting to half or more of a test, 
that's where I start thinking, okay, we might be dealing with something other than just simple food sensitivities here, right? It is possible to be non-reactive across the board. Now, maybe you just simply chose the wrong test to look at, but maybe you don't have any food sensitivities. That certainly is possible. It's less likely the more chronic your health issues are. It's less likely if you have things like chemical sensitivity or autoimmunity or things like leaky gut or dysbiosis or lipopolysaccharides, right? All different scenarios can modify your the, the probability that you have these issues. But if, if, as a general rule, if someone reacts to half or more of any given test, then this might be a sign that, that you have lost what's called oral tolerance, this is a more serious issue than someone who just has, you know, quote unquote, food sensitivities, because loss of oral tolerance implies a significant breakdown in your immune system's ability to not react to things. That's what tolerance is. Tolerance is the ability to not react. It doesn't bother you, so you don't react. So when you lose tolerance, you react. And when you lose a lot of tolerance, you react to everything. And again, this is often paired with things like reactivity to environmental chemicals or autoimmunity, they tend to travel in a group. And if this is happening, then your multi-positive food sensitivity test is now a red flag for much larger issues that deal with core immune function. And, you know, to be honest, that's too complex to get into here today in the context of tier two testing. Now, let me end with this. How often do I do food sensitivity testing? And I would say about half the time. And I don't have a hard number on that. I'm just trying to think off the top of my head. I mean, it's it's about 50-50 with any new client that I take on in my one-on-one -on -one coaching, whether or not we're going to do food sensitivity. Even if it's even if it turns out that we think that we both think that foods are part of their problem, right? And the most limiting factor that leads me to recommend against food testing is that someone has limited their diet so much on their own that the test is going to be largely useless. Remember we said that you have to be eating foods to be able to get reliable and accurate test results. Because if you, if you avoid a food for six months, or sorry, six weeks or more, your antibody responses go back to normal and you're probably going to get false negative testing to foods that you would be reacting to if you actually were eating them. And because I deal with more chronically ill people who do have autoimmunities, they do have complex and chronic issues. They have multiple symptoms and multiple systems. Some of them have leaky gut, not all of them. A lot of them have things like dysbiotic guts and they have blood sugar issues and they have yada, 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 yada. And a lot of times because there's so much information available to, to healthcare consumers now, They've already gone on like an AIP or autoimmune protocol diet, or maybe they're on a, a low FODMAP diet. They, maybe they've gone low histamine. And so more often than not, I'm going to say about 80% of the time, the new clients that I interview for my programs, as they apply, have made some kind of a modification to their diet. And in many cases, about half across the board, the, the amount of modifications they've made to their diet already means it doesn't make sense to spend money on food sensitivity testing. Now, if someone comes in and they're, you know, still on a standard American diet, or maybe they've made changes in the past and they didn't see results and they went back to eating their old way and there's kind of no limitations. Or maybe someone says, you know, I'm mostly gluten-free or I try to avoid corn or soy or whatever, 
then now we've got some wiggle room to say, hey, why don't we think about doing testing? Are we going to go IgE or are we going to go IgG? Are we looking for allergies? Are we looking for sensitivities? And what do we think are the probabilities that we might get some false results based on other things? Like, for example, based on whether or not they have chronic infections and we see microbe to food cross-reactivity. But in the cases where we don't do testing because it doesn't make sense to, we revert to what is the gold standard of figuring this all out. And that's elimination provocation. That's still the gold standard. And it can be done in different ways, but basically we take certain targeted foods out of the diet for a period. We, we do some work to improve their metabolic stability and control and competence of their immune system. And then at some point, we strategically reintroduce foods sometime down the road after a period of time that makes sense for that person. And that might be two to three months. It might be six months to a year or more. It just all depends on the person and what we're dealing with. All right, we're going to bring that portion to a close. When we come back, we'll talk a little bit about ancillary type things that really don't fall under the moniker of food sensitivity testing. We're, we're going to talk about them just under that same topic heading, but we're talking about things like lectins and oxalates and histamines or neurotoxins. And uh, we'll be back again in the next episode with some more information about tier two testing.